It was overcast and cloudy when their bodies were discovered. As officers from the Michigan State Police converged on the scene, a light rain began to fall. Detective Pratt would order blankets to be placed over the bodies and the tire tracks to protect the evidence from being disturbed. It had been five months since Peter Piper escaped from jail in Lake County when Vern Otto and his wife approached the property in Rose Lake Township, which had been his father's property until he died a few months earlier. They pulled down the long driveway off 18 Mile Road, past the two-car garage that sat just off the road, and drove around back to the rear of the house. That's when they saw the bodies on the ground near the back door. Vern and his wife had just returned from a vacation getaway at Herd's Cozy Cottages on Drummond Island. That's cozy with a K. As quaint a name as its amenities, I'm sure. They had stopped to visit his aunt, who had property next door, then decided to check his dad's property, as the family did from time to time, to make sure there were no signs of trespassing or other issues while the estate was being handled through the probate court. You see, this property is what we would affectionately refer to as out in the boonies, and break-ins and robberies are common due to the secluded nature of the area. Mr. Otto's wife had been driving that day, and they had discussed hunting for some morel mushrooms on his father's property while they were there. It was early spring, the perfect time and weather for it. Around 12.30 or so in the afternoon is when his wife pulled down the east fork of the Y-shaped driveway, and as soon as they passed the trailer and reached the area behind the house, the bodies were clearly visible. Tentative at first, Vern got out and walked around the front of the car to get a better view. He needed to make sure he was seeing what he thought he was seeing. It didn't take long to process. Vern ran around the driver's side and ordered his wife to slide over in the seat. Then he slammed the car into drive and pulled forward hastily in an effort to turn around. He almost nailed the chicken coop. It was then that he noticed the tire tracks compressing the grass on the path that led back toward the pond at the rear of the property. They quickly exited by the west fork of the Y-shaped driveway and immediately drove to the house of a neighbor, Mr. Edwards, where he asked the man to phone the police. Vern and his wife remained there, as ordered, and awaited their arrival. The call had gone to the Cadillac, Michigan State Police Post, and Trooper Richards was dispatched at 1245. He arrived at the Edwards residence at 115 and took Mr. Otto's information 
then went down the street to the crime scene about five minutes later. Trooper Richards noted the two-car garage and the mobile home sitting across from the residence as he entered the property. I approached the scene through a grassy area just east of the garage. As I walked southwest toward the house, I observed two bodies lying near the southwest corner of the house. Body number one was lying on its back, and body number two was lying on its left side. The faces of both bodies were badly disfigured and appeared to have been shot at close range. He also noted the tire impressions in both the dirt, which would later be determined to be consistent with Mr. Otto's rendition of events, as well as the ones in the grassy areas of the driveway behind the house that led southward away from the residence into the wooded area. At this time, the trooper returned to his patrol car and radioed his findings, then exited the scene the way he had entered, parked outside the property, and waited for backup. He had no way of knowing if there was a perpetrator who still remained at the scene. Once Trooper Bouquet arrived, both he and Trooper Richards re-entered the scene and followed the tire impressions in the grass away from the house. They led down a narrow two-track road about 100 feet south of the house and ended at a small blue pickup truck that was parked just off the two-track road and obscured from view by the woods. It was positioned just over a knoll. The driver's door was open and the officers noted the interior light was not working. They also found a gold men's wristwatch lying in the two-track, several feet north of the truck. The time on the digital wristwatch was blinking 1.27. The actual time, according to Trooper Richard's watch, was 2.27. When the VIN number of the 1983 blue GMC pickup was later called in, it was learned to be registered to one Richard Lynn Thompson II of Manton, Michigan. Additional officers arrived and more observations were made. They noticed a wooden ladder standing against the roof overhang at the southeast corner of the house. Someone noticed a curtain in the trailer window was slightly ajar. This trailer sat across from the house itself. The door to the trailer had a hasp but no lock, though the door was closed. Another trooper looked in the window of the trailer and observed shotgun shells on a couch in the living area. Someone also noted that the mailbox on the west side of the driveway had been standing open. A blood-soaked area on the ground at the northeast corner near the base of the house was found with drag marks leading to where the mail body was located. A similar blood-soaked area was found on the south side of the house, a few feet from the corner, also near the base of the house, close to where the female body was located. It was around this time that Michigan State Police Detective Sergeant George Pratt arrived. Due to the weather, 
The first thing he did was instructed the officers to use the accident blankets from the patrol cars to cover the bodies and the tire tracks to protect the evidence from the potentially damaging incoming storm. From Detective Pratt's Notes The Keith Auto property consists of 77.5 acres, more or less, with a two-car garage sitting in an east-west direction just south of 18 Mile Road. A permanently affixed older-style 40-foot pink-and-white house trailer sits in an east-west direction facing 18 Mile Road to the east of the driveway and between the two-car garage and the residence proper. An off-white-colored stucco-type sided one-story house, the former residence of the now-deceased Keith Auto, faces 18 Mile Road in a north-south direction on the west side of the driveway. There is a one-car garage with white-colored wood siding that is situated behind the house and to the west of the west edge of the residence in an east-west direction with a lean-to on the south side. There is an old weather-beaten wood-sided structure believed to have been a chicken coop at one time due to fencing around it that is on the east side of the driveway, approximately 50 feet south of the residence. At the current time, the auto property was an estate under the county probate court's jurisdiction. So while he waited for a warrant to search the buildings on the premises, Detective Pratt obtained Mr. Otto's full account, as earlier relayed. He then began the task of determining which family members had keys to the house and the buildings on the property. Pictures were taken of Mr. Otto's shoes, since he had walked near the bodies, and also the tires of his 1980 Buick Skylark, all with his consent to later be used for elimination purposes. It wasn't until 7.34 that evening that a warrant was obtained so the property could fully be searched. During that time, the medical examiner and crime lab people had arrived and were busy performing their prospective duties, which included taking pictures and bagging the hands of the victims to preserve any evidence. It was established that Richard was shot near the northeast corner of the house at ground level and then dragged from that point to where he was found. His arms were stretched out above his head. His jacket and shirt were pushed up, exposing his chest and stomach. Based on the condition of his skin in the exposed area, it was also evident that he had been dragged face down, also evidenced by the soiled front of his clothing and the dirt in his facial wounds. Alita Thompson was found on her side and had also been shot in the face as she lay next to the foundation of the house at ground level. But she was shot on the other side of the house, the south side. Her sweater jacket and vest had oddly been removed from only her right arm and it was noted that she had been moved from where she was shot to the southeast corner to a position that put her right heel within three inches of Richard's elbow. The couple had been shot on opposite sides of the house, then dragged to a spot behind the house. Once Detective Pratt had completed his assessment of the bodies, the Thompsons were prepared for transport, and he began his investigation of the buildings on the property. At the trailer, they noticed that the hasp was in the closed position. Once they removed it, officers had placed the only recent mark on the eyelet portion, which had been rusted into place indicating to them that it had not been unhasped recently. Nothing was found inside the trailer to indicate any disturbance 
or that anything had occurred inside. However, the curtain that faced the west, described as slightly ajar, did allow view toward the driveway and residence. The only other door in the trailer was found to be secured. They found the one-car garage building to the south of the residence behind the house was padlocked and all doors secured, locked from the inside. As with the trailer, they found no signs of force entry. When he was able to further investigate the truck that was hidden in the wooded area behind the house, Detective Pratt learned that the keys were in the ignition, in the on position, and the battery was dead. It wasn't until three days later that the police took a metal detector back out to the property in an effort to find more evidence, possibly shells or a murder weapon. At the time, a trooper discovered an area on the ground which appeared to be soaked with blood, described as four to five inches in diameter, and located five or six feet from where the driver's door of the vehicle was located. Samples of the bloody grass were taken and the area was photographed. All of the neighbors were contacted, including the aunt that Mr. Otto and his wife had earlier visited, but no one contacted within a mile radius of the crime was able to supply any information, despite the fact that there had been at least four gunshots, which was later learned at autopsy. At that time it was learned that Richard was shot twice in the head, once in the right temple and another behind the left ear, at close range by a shotgun with birdshot-type load. His neck had also been cut in the Adam's apple area, a very deliberate wound that was over six inches in length, along with a second cut to the side of the neck of about an inch and a half that joined the other deep neck wound. He also had three stab wounds to his left armpit area, which were described as superficial, though at depths between one and a half and two and a half inches, that feels a little less than superficial to me. One thing of particular evidentiary value was the tape they found wrapped around his neck several times, tightly adhered to the front of the neck where the wound was, but loose enough in the back that they thought it could have initially been wrapped around his head, possibly his eyes, and then subsequently been pulled down. Alita was shot once behind the left eye and once to the left neck, again at close range. Although she had no signs of tape being applied to her, at least not any that could be found, even at autopsy, there would later be indications that she too had been taped up at some point. I experienced a poignant relatability as I read their clothing descriptions. J.C. Penny plain pocket jeans and McGregor hooded sweatshirt for Richard. Alita with her pink pullover shirt that read, The Boss her Calvin Klein jeans and gray and pink reversible vest. They both wore blue and white nylon Tracks brand sneakers. These were high school sweethearts who had only been married for nine months and they were wearing matching tennis shoes. It's hard to imagine what goes through the mind of someone who could put a shotgun to each of their heads as they laid on the ground, defenseless. In fact, the senselessness of it all comes into clearer focus as I read the contents found in Richard's pockets. Three quarters, one nickel, one penny, lip balm, fingernail clippers, blue and white handkerchief, and a hair pick. And then there's the silver lunchbox with R. Thompson printed on it, 
packed with enough food for them both. Two peanut butter and jelly sandwiches, two plain peanut butter sandwiches, and a thermos of what the detective thought was fruit juice or Kool-Aid. There was a baggie of celery, a baggie of carrots, and a plastic container of Jello with pineapple in it. Also included was a plastic baggie with a small vial containing one toothpick, two aspirin, a few cough drops, and a couple pieces of hard candy and a pack of gum. I find myself wondering which one of them didn't like jelly. And was it Richard who was fastidious about using a toothpick after a meal, or was that Alita? The contents of the lunchbox alone tell me so much about this couple, but their taste in music provides an even stronger sense association. Along with the portable super-suction vacuum found in Richard's truck, police found a new cassette player with the price tag still on it and a copy of Yes's album, 90215. As the investigation wore on, Detective Pratt learned more about the couple from family members. At 5 foot 10 and 160 pounds, Richard had gray-blue eyes and curly hair that his mother described as natural. For the police report, Detective Pratt clarified by describing it as an afro. Richard graduated from Manton High School in 1981 and was awarded the Athlete of the Year Award that same year. Just prior to the murders, he had been laid off from his job at Wilcox Surveying in Manton. Of his disposition, his mother described him as very passive. She said, Richard didn't like any type of violence. Alita would graduate from the same high school two years later and was named the unsung hero of her class, which was awarded to a student in recognition for extra effort at school in assisting teachers, students, and activities to the betterment of the school. At five foot four and 110 pounds, Alita was a pretty little thing with blue eyes and dark brown hair, and you almost never saw her without her signature pink on. She loved pink. Everything she wore had to have something pink in it. That's what her friends and family said. Alita babysat in their home and did house cleaning and ironing jobs on the side. Richard was a simple guy, friends said, and nothing illustrated that better than his love of popcorn. He ate it all the time. In fact, a plastic container with popcorn was found inside the truck in the passenger seat when police went through it looking for evidence. While they were trying to positively ID Alita, police had learned the detail that her watch had an alarm on it that was set for 8 p.m. each night so she wouldn't forget to take her birth control pill. By all accounts, these kids, and they were still kids, were settling into adulthood responsibly, doing all the things we raise our kids to do. Work for what you want. Be smart about life choices. They even went to Alita's parents' house every weekend to visit, although both friends and family said that the couple spent most of their time alone together. They were so well-liked, their funeral was held at Manton High School because of the need for a large venue. Just like Mr. Wilson, the shooting victim I told you about in the last episode, the Thompsons' funeral was attended by over 300 people. After all of the close family members were interviewed, one piece of information stuck out. 
one of those things that sounds that tiny alarm in the head of the skilled investigator. In late April, Alita had placed an ad in the newspaper offering her housework services. She had shared with her mother that she'd gotten one particular response from a man who wanted to hire her for two days, ten hours each day, and he would pay her ten fifty an hour. He said he was in the process of moving and wanted the walls of the home cleaned top to bottom. The man said he lived just outside of Marion and would need to meet her at a gas station or restaurant in Marion because she wouldn't be able to find where he lived. When he asked how old she was, Alita told him that she was 19. He told her that his wife said not to hire anyone under 20, so if she asked, Alita was to tell her she was 20. He told her that his wife would likely be in and out while Alita worked. Alita's mother told police that the day that she was supposed to meet this man on April 18th, Richard got laid off and he had to attend a meeting at work. Due to this, they were late to meet the man, but they had driven to Marion anyway, hoping to meet him. Unfortunately, they never made contact. But Alita told her sister that while they waited for him to show up, a person in a green pickup kept passing back and forth. Now, I am sure that you, just like I, already have alarm bells sounding as you hear these details. Ten fifty an hour? That's a pretty fair wage for house cleaning now. It's certainly higher than minimum wage in some places in this country, but it clearly was a lot for 1984. In fact, this detail is mentioned in the report. Alita's parents told her that something about it didn't sound right and that she better not go alone to meet him. They implored her to take Richard along with her, and she did. Another thing that sticks out like a bloody knife from the back of a bloated corpse is how a man, trying to lure a woman to a remote enough location that he doesn't even think she can find it on her own, might toss in the subterfuge, like how his wife wanted him to hire someone over 20. A manipulative offender would certainly say whatever he thought he needed to say, in order to make the young woman comfortable with meeting him, even if that meant pretending someone else would be there that day. Then there's that green pickup that appeared to be repeatedly passing Alita and Richard as they waited to meet the prospective client. All of this sounds very suspicious. I'll also refresh your memory about something that Alita couldn't have known at the time. When Peter Piper's room was searched after he was arrested for the attacks on the prostitutes, one of the things they found was a Grand Rapids press bill in the name of Robert Thomas, his alias. So you have to ask yourself, what does a sex predator fugitive need with a regular news subscription? Unless it's a tool to search out his victims. Piper doesn't exactly strike me as the newspaper reading type. So, Alita had missed out on the house cleaning opportunity, and she told her family that she was disappointed. She mentioned how she hadn't even thought to get his contact information, so she couldn't even call him back to explain. But on April 29th, six days before the murders, the man called back, and she was set to meet him on May 2nd, according to her father. This was corroborated by a note on the calendar that hung on the side of the Thompson's refrigerator. 
Written under the date of May 2nd was the notation, Marion, 9 o'clock. According to her parents, Alita told the man that her husband was coming along that day, and the man told her that was okay. But now you see why the lunch was packed for two when their bodies were found outside that unoccupied home where they would eventually be found. They were expecting a 10-hour day of cleaning, and Richard had accompanied his wife for safety. The truly heartbreaking thing here is that these two, they did everything right, and still, somehow it all went wrong. When police searched their apartment, they were able to corroborate what Dr. Cole believed they had eaten approximately three hours prior to the deaths, and that meal had included pineapple and sliced ham and eggs. This was supported by the evidence left on the dirty dishes in the sink. Remnants of all three food products were found. This final breakfast that they shared reveals touching details about the victims. Remember, they're 19 and 21 years old. One of them has cooked a full breakfast for the other. Or maybe they even did it together. Ham and eggs and pineapple. I doubt I was fixing myself more than toast or a bowl of cereal at that age, and I don't think I added pineapple to my shopping list until somewhere in my 30s. Hell, I didn't even use a shopping list at that age. I think I got my first credit card around then, and I recall going on an unfortunate spending spree at the local 7-Eleven during a party I was having in our apartment, of which my parents had not approved and most certainly were not aware. We even lost the family cat that night due to the collective alcohol consumption of our group. But these young people... Richard and Alita, they were responsible. His mother said Richard didn't even like to be around people who drank. They had their shit together, and it was all shattered one day by a predator who, by that time, knew the actual target of his interest wouldn't be coming alone. He knew Alita was bringing her husband. This tells me that he was already prepared to take care of Richard before any of them arrived that fateful day. No matter what you will hear much later about what Peter Piper says happened that day, I am certain that his original intent with Alita was something similar to what occurred with Mary decades earlier. Another thing written on the big calendar on the side of the Thompson's refrigerator would become important to ruling out where they may have gone or not gone in those days before the murder. But to set this other calendar note up, let me explain. There was a witness that believed they had spotted Richard and Alita at Keel's IGA store between 6.30 and 7 on Wednesday evening, May 2nd. Richard was carrying a loaf of bread, and Alita was sitting in their blue truck. Apparently, the police report notes, the Thompsons returned home, as no loaf of bread was found in their truck at the time of the homicide discovery. No full loaf was found in their home either, but in a lunch found in the truck, eight slices of bread were found, that were utilized in making the four double-slice sandwiches. There was also a witness who recalled looking for Richard's truck on the 3rd the next day when he went to work at about 8 a.m., but it wasn't in the lot at their apartment. This is where the calendar comes into play. It is believed that the Thompson's vehicle, the 1983 S15 pickup, had 69.5 miles driven on it from Tuesday, May 1st until Saturday, May 5th, when the vehicle was found at the homicide scene. This is based on a notation on the calendar of the mileage being 8404 
and what was found on the odometer when the truck was found, 8473.5. It is approximately 23.5 miles one way from the Thompsons' residence to the scene where they were found. It is at least 27 miles by main roads to Marion from Manton. It is felt that it would have been impossible to travel to Marion and back home on Wednesday to meet with the unknown subject and then to the murder scene on late Wednesday night or Thursday. There would have been more miles registered on the vehicle. Either the meeting wasn't kept on Wednesday or it wasn't in Marion, Michigan. You recall Marion is where the calendar said that 9 o'clock meeting was to occur. I assume that's a.m., but even if it was p.m., as the report noted, and they went to meet the stranger in the evening and then drove home and then back out again to the place where they were found, the mileage numbers would have been higher. So perhaps the man called them prior to the 9 o'clock Wednesday meeting and changed the date of the meeting to Thursday, the 3rd, the next day, and set up another place to meet and go straight to the property, somewhere closer to the Thompsons' apartment than Marion. That would explain them already having a lunch packed. That could have also had them out of the house prior to when the witness drove by the lot after 8 that morning on the 3rd and noticed that their car was missing. Over the ensuing months, Detective Pratt interviewed family and friends as well as teachers and classmates. Many tips were followed up on, including possible sightings. Composite sketches were made of persons of interest who were in the area of the property on the day of the murder. A plea was printed in the newspaper asking for anyone who had responded to Alita Thompson's house-cleaning ad or anyone she had worked for to contact their local state police post. There was a great deal of time spent on what initially appeared to be an unexplained phone call that came from the Thompson's apartment during a time when they would have already been deceased, but in the end it appears to have only been an error in recording on the part of the telephone company. Another tip that was given a great deal of attention was from a group of Seventh-day Adventist church members who had stopped at the property where the murders occurred on April 26th, a little over a week before the Thompsons were discovered. They remembered an older model, white Chevrolet, maybe a 59 or 60, parked there, as well as tire tracks going in and out of the premises. When they knocked at the door of the house, they got no answer. So a list of over a 1,000 registered vehicles in Michigan within that year range was combed through, as none of the Otto family members knew of anyone with a car matching that description. By September 1st, four months after the double homicide, the police report reads, Good investigative leads in the case have subsided. On September 7th, Detective Pratt got a call from a detective in the Wexford County Sheriff's Department who was contacted by a woman that insisted she had information concerning the homicides near Reed City. When they visited this woman together, she told them that she had spoken with a friend every day on the telephone, and in their conversations, the person advised her that she had a brother who lived near Reed City who constantly discussed the homicides as well as, quote, the shooting of their privates off, of the couple from Manton, the killing in the gamble store, and an old man whose car was found and then his cane was found a year later. Apparently, a man told this woman's brother that he did it, and she advised the detectives that she would attempt to elicit more information from this person. When she left, the Wexford County detective told Detective Pratt that the woman was quite a heavy drinker, and used to hang out in all the bars in Cadillac. There's a couple reasons why I've shared this, one of which is that I have gotten this exact type of lead multiple times regarding the local homicides. 
someone insisting to me that they have information on a bunch of murders, and then they rattle off either gossip they've heard or details that they've gotten from the newspaper. This woman says the man in question not only mentioned the Thompsons, inserting a detail that isn't even accurate regarding their private parts being shot off, but also mentioned the Jeanette Robertson case, my season two case, that occurred in the Gamble store. The other case she mentioned was a man by the name of Mr. Sweet, who also died under suspicious circumstances, or so I'm told. I don't know anything about that case. Maybe I'll cover it in future seasons. The point is, people come to investigators with tips, and they have to at least listen to them. Sometimes they even contain a thread of truth, or coincidentally contain accurate information, so they have to follow up until their shirt can be ruled out. Detective Pratt had been investigating the double homicide of the Thompsons for over a year, when the prostitutes in Grand Rapids were giving police their stories of the John who had assaulted them. He was also still working on the Jeanette Robertson homicide from January of 1983. Then, four months into his investigation into the Thompson murders, Sue Clayson, a pretty real estate agent, was lured to a remote property in Reed City and murdered by someone who had come into her real estate office in Cadillac, requesting she show him some property with a lot of acreage. That's three homicide cases, one of which is a double homicide on Detective Pratt's plate, and he was the state police investigator assigned to the areas in which they were all killed. The Thompson and Clayson cases have something in common that any investigator will tell you makes cases like them significantly more difficult to solve. They are random offenders with no link to the victim. Of Sue Clayson's homicide, Detective Pratt notes on the Thompson report. On September 11, 1984, the body of Venus Sue Clayson, a real estate person working out of Century 21 Progressive Office in Cadillac, Michigan, was discovered murdered in Panora Township, Lake County. Miss Clayson had lived with her ex-husband until 1975 and subsequently by herself until 1982 in the Manton area. As of this writing, there is no information to connect the homicides of the Thompsons with that of Mrs. Clayson. Due to the Clayson homicide, investigation into the Thompson homicides has temporarily been affected. However, both are still being pursued. Case status open. Stay tuned for part two of the Thompsons.